Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guests today are Liz Lefebvre and Amy Evans. Both Liz and Amy are board-certified behavior analysts with specializations in precision teaching, fluency-based instruction, instructional design, and ascent-based treatment, as well as the co-founders of Octave, an organization dedicated to improving skill sets of behavior analysts, teachers, and instructional designers. In today's conversation, we discuss why Liz and Amy decided to start Octave, what are Octave's values and mission, what precision teaching, instructional design, and ascent-based treatment are, what Liz and Amy have learned from listening to autistic voices and how that has affected their programming, why practitioners should move away from, quote, traditional ABA and undo the training that they might have undergone, what some of the potential barriers to ethical practices in ABA are, how to increase a client's appetite for learning, and advice for other practitioners. In this episode, discover what's possible when you listen before you practice. To learn more about Liz and Amy, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Liz Lefebvre and Amy Evans. Hello, Liz and Amy. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So let's start with some brief introductions. Sure. My name is Liz, and I currently reside in Santa Cruz, California, kind of move around quite a bit. And I've been working in the field of ABA for about 20 years, and I currently have a private practice located in the Seattle area. We also have international clients as well in Hong Kong. And then I also am the co-founder of Octave Innovation, and we are a training company that provides training to clinicians, both BCBAs and teachers that are working with learners with a variety of, of needs. All right. Thanks, Liz. And Amy? I'm Amy Evans. I am also a co-founder of Octave. I do also have my own private practice. The work that I do clinically is more academic in nature, so I work with children across the span of ages who are struggling in school, and that's what I've specialized in over the years. Great. So let's talk about Octave. What are some of your values and your mission statement? Well, we've been working on our mission statement because it's something that I think as we've developed, we're about three years into this. As we've developed Octave, we've shifted a little bit in kind of what we want to do and the reach that we want to have. Primarily, our our goal, our mission is to improve the skill sets of clinicians. And really what it comes down to is making those clinicians more confident in the practices that they implore. I mean, everything from, you know the science, how do you now apply it? You know your learners, how do you make sure to individualize for your learners? These are all things that, especially behavior analysts who are our primary folks that we work with right now, although we do work with teachers and other therapists. But what we found is that really it's that confidence piece. So people know a lot more than they think they do. And there's a lot of other things to add to their repertoires that can really move the needle and change their practice. So we're kind of playing in that space of bringing that confidence and additional critical skill sets to practitioners working in the autism space primarily. Got it. So what made you guys decide to start Octave? Was there like a pivotal point or something in your careers that made you go for this leap? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of things that led to Liz and I working together. And I know that we've always both had some similar values and mission. 
but it just made sense for us to work together. So a, a long time ago, I was working with Chartlytics, which is now Precision X, owned by Central Reach. And the work that I was doing was in developing software. And Liz was actually one of my clients. So I would check in with her regularly and say, okay, you're using this software. How do you want it to be modified for your needs? And she always had amazing feedback. And I was really interested in the work that she was doing. And I nagged her for years about like, hey, do you want to work on this project together? What do you think about this? And she just became somebody that I was constantly interacting with about really high quality clinical work. And so that's always kind of been my history with Liz. Um, And then right around 2019, 2020 was when we were starting to both kind of want a career change and we decided the timing was perfect. And of course, we started an online company right before the start of the pandemic, which it's so funny how that worked out, but it, it worked out really nicely. I think Amy and I were both at a place in our careers where I was doing mostly clinical work and running businesses, which is not why I got into this field. And so it just made sense and the, and the timing was right. And Amy called me one day and was like, let's do it. And I was just like, okay. And then we started working on it and pandemic hit and here we are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so at that time, did you see this need for more professional training like that maybe clinicians weren't getting from their regular supervisors or clinic directors? I think we both were seeing it from different perspectives, but also kind of the same lens. I was working with some organizations, transitioning them from more of a a traditional ABA model to using precision teaching and getting out and doing, you know, workshops and, and presentations and stuff and just seeing what services look like more broadly across the U.S. mostly. And it was just really clear to me that we need to do better as a field. And I was super excited and motivated to be able to help people learn how to do things in a different way. Hmm. What about you, Amy? Well, it was similar for me. I was kind of on a, on a workshop and conference circuit. So I met a ton of people from different organizations that were at different stages of, at the time we were talking primarily about implementing precision teaching using the standard acceleration chart. These are my specializations, but as I was having these conversations, I was getting the same questions over and over again. And it just sort of came up that there has to be a better way to get this information out to people so that we can get past the basic conversations and get deeper into the clinical conversations that need to happen about how to really move the needle. So again, I was answering basic questions all the time about this and that, and it was just time to move to the next level. So for me, it was how do we get all of these conversations or all of this basic information out to people in a way that they can consume that and then take the next step to really digging into how can your, again, we'll we'll talk more about precision teaching and some of the things that we do, but it's primarily measurement and database decision-making, which is just at the crux of so much of what folks do in this space when they're trying to use science to affect the lives of folks that they're working with. Mm. Yeah. And why the name Octave? I love this because nobody asks. (laughs) Nobody asks? We thought everyone was going to ask because it, it, it is kind of like off. It doesn't really seem like something that's in the field of behavior analysis, but go ahead, Amy. Yeah. I think music, that's... Yeah. That's exactly right. So in music, an octave is a doubling in frequency. So when you go up an octave, that's mathematically what's happening is you're going up a frequency of times two. And in precision teaching, a doubling in frequency or a times two is essentially a magic number for us. It's a way that we understand a really significant change in behavior or skills or performance. So that connotation has always been really fun for us. The other thing about music is that when we're describing something that precision teachers specialize in is fluency. 
And when we're describing fluency, the best way to make fluency make sense to people is by talking about music or sports, because people understand that practice and speed and getting faster and more efficient with things is how you get better at things. So when we talk about fluency, we often use those analogies or those references too. You know what it feels like to be fluent at a sport or at, you know, we talk about musicians, dancers. So it just kind of fit that theme and we really liked it. And we had this obsession with having a one word, (laughs) a one word business name. We were like octave. So that was always really exciting to us too. Yeah. So thank you for asking. We love answering that question. (laughs) All right. So you've mentioned a couple of times now precision teaching. How would you best describe how this fits in with behavior analysis? Is it a method? Is it an approach? Because, you know, as a behavior analyst myself, I'm not trained in it. And it's not necessarily part of the required skills you need to know or knowledge base to pass the exam. So is it just like a, an arm, a leg of behavior analysis? So it definitely fits under the umbrella of, like, of behavior analysis. But since Amy is, is a master and wrote an article about what the definition of precision teaching <laughs> is, I'm going to go ahead and let her tell you about that. <laughs> okay. So when we talk about precision teaching, a lot of people want to call it like a teaching method, but really what it is is a system. It's a whole system that kind of structures how you define and measure behavior and then the system that you use for analyzing those data on the back end. So precision teaching is a system for precisely defining and continuously measuring dimensional units of behavior and then putting all that information, those data get transformed and we put those data on the standard acceleration chart, which is our our tool. So again, you're doing precision teaching if you're using this tool and if you're making database decisions using that tool. So if all those pieces are in place, then you're doing precision teaching. A lot of people think that precision teaching is a method of instruction, which I mean, you can say that and I'm not going to be offended, but what we've spent a lot of time in our education about this, what we've spent a lot of time talking with people about and working with people on is that you can actually take that measurement system and that database decision-making system and wrap it around anything that you're doing. So you don't have to change everything that you do in order to implement precision teaching. You can kind of build in that precision of measurement and data analysis over whatever it is that you're already implementing. So that's been a big piece of our message working with folks about this. Hmm. Okay. And so with this system and the tool of the standard acceleration chart, do you find that the decisions that you make based on the data are more accurate because you're able to be more precise? We're both shaking our heads. (laughs) Yeah, we're both like nodding very aggressively right now. (laughs) What happens when you're using the chart? There's a few things about the chart that make it so unique. One is that we're looking at dots and X's. We're looking at correct responses and incorrect responses. And by doing that, we have more access to the data. So you're just seeing more. The way that the chart is structured, and I could go deep into this, but I don't think that's why we're here today. So I'm (laughs) going to just go as quick as I can. But the way that the chart is structured allows us to have a very standardized way of looking at things so that once you have seen a chart, you've seen them all. And so there's this really quick, rapid analysis that can be done. Once you get used to using the chart, then you can flip through many charts and see really quickly what the patterns are. That's a feature of the standardization because everything's kind of in the same place and we use the same symbols and that just makes that part easy. The other big piece of it is that the chart is structured to show you kind of a proportional view of behavior change. So what you get out of that is that you can see whether change is meaningful or not, and you can see that visually. So there's a lot of really cool visual analysis that comes out of that, and it keeps you from, in my experience, what we've seen with people learning this is that it keeps them from getting too in in the weeds with stuff that doesn't matter, you know, little Mm -hmm. changes day to day. 
And it helps you really see the overall patterns of behavior. So this just makes it so much easier to really see what's happening. You get access to more information on a chart than you do in most other graphing practices. Okay, got it. And so some of the other frameworks that you guys specialize in and that you teach include instructional design. Could you talk a little bit about that and why that's important? Sure. Instructional design is a huge field of its own. And as behavior analysts and even more specifically precision teachers, we have been trained to design instruction for our learners using Teeman and Markle. It, it is the authors of the curriculum that we kind of look to for this process. And they wrote a couple of books and design the process that they, they go through in terms of in designing instruction. And so we've kind of taken that in the field of precision teaching and we've adapted it to the content that we need to teach our learners. And it really provides a very thorough way of designing instruction so that you can ensure that your learner, as you take them from step A to step Z on any given program or even across programs, that you're really getting a thorough, you're really taking them through a thorough process and ensuring that you're establishing complete skills. And so you get generalization automatically. You get what we call retention or maintenance over time. And you you can make sure that those learners are going to actually be able to apply the skills that they are learning in their therapeutic environment into real life. And so that instructional design process is really important. And I think one of the things we see is, you know, we do a lot of training in precision teaching and, and people, we get them charting and then they show up with their data. And the biggest thing we hear is like, well, we, we see clearly in the data that either it's going really well and we don't know what to do next, or it's not going really well and we don't know why, or we don't know how to change it. And so the instructional design piece is where what comes in at that point is if you have designed instruction really well and smoothly, you know exactly where to go next and you know exactly how to remedy whatever the situation is. So if the data show up that, you know, something's not working, you know exactly what to do about it and how to isolate the things that that need to be changed. And so it's really, you know, of course we love our measurement system, but once you get that going and then you layer the instructional design pieces on top of it, it's like this very smooth, flawless way of programming and ensuring that you get progress with your learners, you know, depending on whatever the skills are that you've selected to teach them. Hmm. Anything to add, Amy? I think, Liz, you said it beautifully. And I think what I find really amazing about adding instructional design to precision teaching is that everything becomes about efficiency. Hmm. And that's what I've learned from working with Liz is like, how efficient can we possibly be? You start to learn about your learners as you design instruction and look at the data. And I didn't know that this was all possible when I got started in the field, that you can actually look at a graph and see my learner, yes, can handle learning six things at a time instead of two things at a time. And a lot of times the way that we program in ABA is like there's kind of a structured way that programs are introduced and, and move forward. With autistic learners, of course, that doesn't always work. We're in the business of individualizing to make things work for each and every individual. And I find that this process of instructional design with that data piece has been so valuable to just really getting confident that you know what's going on and what your learner can handle and whether you're gonna your next step is going to be too hard or too easy for them. You can kind of start to figure that out and modify as you go. And I just think that's so cool. Mm. Yeah. The other cool part about it is that you don't need the standard acceleration chart or to be a precision teacher to do that. Of course, it definitely will step up your game in terms of what you're able to do is if you can see clearly the effects that it's having. But it, the instructional design piece is really very flexible and can be applied to any practice. And so I think that's just another important thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe give an example of a program and how you would look at it from that lens? Sure. So just to keep it pretty simple and straightforward, you know, most 
behavior analysts teach tacting of some sort at some point in time in programming. And so when you are starting, you're going to start with instructional design at the, from this point, we've selected the skill that we want to teach. And so we're going to design what we call an instructional sequence for that skill. And so Amy was mentioning, like, my learner can learn two things at a time or six things at a time. And so the number of things that you might introduce to a learner at a time, that would be something that we would control for. So we call them critical features, the things that we want to control for. So you basically are going to select out a set of features that will guide you. you want to, you're going to systematically move through these features across the life of the program. And so you'll, you'll start out with just identifying what those features are. So the number of new you know, targets, if you will, or items that you might teach in a tacting program at a time. And I think another big one that we run into all the time is how similar are those things to one another? If you're teaching a little kid to you know, label food items that they might want to eventually request, then don't teach tomato and apple at the same time because they look too similar, that sort of thing. And so you, you're going to come up with a list of these features that you select out that you're going to step through. Once you've got those, then you can design a sequence of how you're going to move through each of these features going from, you know, in the beginning, I don't want to teach tomato and apple together. But by the end of that program, it would be really cool if we could teach things that are closer discriminations together so that we know that we're building our learners' abilities to make visual discriminations if that's going to be something that's important for them in the future. And so once you've got that piece of it done, then you're on to your simulate. In order to teach a tacting program, you're either going to need 3D objects you know, around the room, or you're going to need pictures of items or something like that. And so how do you select out the actual stimuli, the examples that you're going to be exposing the learner to in order to teach these tacks? There's also a set of things that are critical about those things. And so we want to make sure we're identifying what's critical and then also what, what are the things that need to be variable, right? So I don't want to just teach apple with just pictures of red apples with a white background. I want to teach cut up apples and apples on trees and yellow apples and green apples. And so you really have an analysis at that level of each item that you really need to think through in order to get that generalization. So this process applies from, you know, the selection of the skill that you're going to teach through how you're going to bring the learner through that process, then down to each individual example that you're working on. So that's just kind of one example of, of for a tacting program that is really common and a lot of the people that we work with in our training are looking to set up programming similar to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those little critical points or those factors that you're considering could really slow someone down or just like make them hit a wall. And sometimes behavior analysts don't really know how to look for those things that are getting in the way of that learning. So it's, yeah, I could see how that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we're finding is that people, again, we found this through looking at people's data, but what we're finding is that people will stay in one kind of phase with one set of conditions, with all those features in one place where they've got, maybe they have six things that they're working on and they're doing it for 10 minutes a day and they're using a certain type of stimuli and they're asking a certain type of question and using a certain type of prompt. And that's kind of the phase that they're in. And what we're finding is that each one of those things are variables that can be tweaked. And all you have to do to be successful is find which one of those you can make easier that would make a difference. And so starting at the beginning with what are all of those features that may or may not make something easier for the learner versus harder? We know we eventually need to get to point Z, like Liz talks about, but what really is point A? What is the way that we can introduce this so that the learner will be successful right off the bat? And that's a really great, amazing way to keep us from hitting a wall with our learner because that's painful for everybody involved. It can cause a lot of problems with rapport. It can make things really challenging for the learner and make it like they may just not want to be involved in participating in your program if your program is not positive for them and they're seeing that they're not learning. And then, of course, it all comes back to the clinicians and their own confidence with their own skills. and. 
I can't tell you how many times we've kind of seen that wall hit and just we're going to do the same thing over and over again and hope that one day it just magically shows up. And sometimes that happens, but it doesn't need to be that way. Right. Yeah. I think along those lines, too, another important thing that we don't talk about often enough is when you've designed instruction to start at the right place for your learner, you rarely need to prompt. And I think that that's a really important thing because why not start with independence, right? Mm. And so if you can get something happening independently from the get-go, that's going to be better for you. It's going to be better for the learner for sure they're going to start feeling successful right off the bat. And then you don't have to worry about any of prompt hierarchies and any, anything like that. You know, every once in a while, there's going to be a situation where you might have to do something like that. But for the most part in, in my career, I've been able to find the right starting point and move at the pace that the learner can handle in order to never have to intervene more heavily with prompting. Mm, that's a great, great point. Because then it can lead to, as Amy, you were saying, that kind of not wanting to be there, just not having fun. And when they're not having fun, they're, you know, it's harder to learn. So just setting up that environment so everyone is successful, which kind of leads to another framework that you guys train in, which is ascent-based treatment. Could you talk a little bit about that and why it's important? Sure. So ascent-based treatment is really something that's coming up in the field right now, finally, I feel like. And it's really a movement towards listening to autistic voices and people who have experienced ABA in the past and honoring what their experience is and taking it as feedback to change the way that we work with our learners. I think, you know, precision teaching and instructional design is really all about the how, how to do this. Ascent-based treatment is all about the what. Like, what are we doing? What goes into the treatment plan? What is our approach in in therapy in general? And so ascent-based treatment, I've been really fortunate to work with a a lovely group of individuals, all behavior analysts. And we've we've all been practicing kind of in the ascent-based treatment framework for a long time, but it's definitely developed over time. And we call ourselves the Ascent Lab. I know that there's several different Ascent Labs out there, but these lovely folks have, we've been working on kind of defining what it is that Ascent-based treatment is for us. And it really is multiple components. So there is the way we structure the programming and the way we select goals for our learners. That's definitely important. We want to make sure we're selecting things that our learners want to learn, things that are oriented to their values, things that are oriented to keeping them safe, of course, and then also promoting autonomy. So that's really the focus of ascent-based treatment is how do we set up from the beginning our programming to meet those criteria? Then as we're working with learners, how are we respecting their autonomy in honoring their, what we call ascent withdrawal. So ascent meaning they are showing with their behavior that they want to be there. And then ascent withdrawal being they're showing us in some way, like Amy was mentioning, that they don't want to be there. And that can be very subtle or it can be really clear. And that when they show us that they don't want to be there, we listen and we stop what we're doing and we change it. And we try to figure out a different way to do it or we evaluate whether or not it's something that's actually important to them and to their, in their world. Of course, we measure. We measure all of those things with it and we make database decisions on, you know, the learner told me three times in a row they don't like this. Well, that's a pretty clear message. We need to not do it that way anymore or we need to not do it at all anymore, depending on what the situation is. And then also, you know, making sure we have boundaries set up that we're teaching our learners to have their own boundaries and teaching them to negotiate, but also teaching them to respect other people's boundaries because they do have to exist in a world where we share space and we, we interact with one another. So ascent-based treatment is just up and kind of up and coming in the field. And I think it still is evolving and still has a long way to go. We, you know, the field of ABA has a lot of coercive practices in our history and it's a definitely a different way of approaching treatment and looking at treatment. And I think we're starting to get more information out there about it. And it just is going to be a long process, I feel like. But I think it's super important that we're listening to the people who have actually experienced it and honoring what they have to say about it. Yeah, definitely. What have you learned from listening to autistic voices, like specifically ones who have 
undergone ABA? What have you learned that influences the programs that you teach now? Yeah. So, I mean, every experience is different. Definitely, you know, obviously every individual has a different experience and there are some people who have had really traumatic experiences with it. And then there are other people who don't feel that way. I think some of the things that have been really enlightening to me are things that as behavior analysts, we're just trained to do from the start. So I feel like prompting is one of them particularly prompt hierarchies and like hand over hand prompting. Like if you think about that, I don't want anyone touching me and making my hands do something that I don't want them to be doing. And so that's clear. That's very clear to me. And that's, that's, you know, luckily I was trained with this instructional design background. And so I never really had to do a lot of that, but that's something that's just trained from the get-go in our field. And so that's something that is really traumatic for a lot of people is like they were being forced with, you know, people putting their hands on them to do certain things. So that's been something that is really eye-opening to me. Also, you know, the types of goals that we select for our learners, I think a lot of people's training, it's, it's kind of just like, here's the VB map and here's this curriculum and let's, you know, put our learners through all of these skills because these are the skills that they need in order to function in a classroom or, you know, wherever it is that they're headed. And from the, the experiences that I've been hearing about, it's like, well, what if that's just not what those learners want to be doing? What if they don't want to have social skills? What if they prefer to be you know, private. I think a big one in the field is eye contact, right? And so, you know, we've been taught to shape up eye contact and joint attention and those things. That's been passed down for years in our field. And hearing autistic people talk about that, it's just, it it seems very obvious to me when I hear them talk about it. It's like, why are we doing that in the first place? So it's a hard thing to hear because I love the science of of behavior analysis and it's really powerful science. I know it can do really great things, but I think also we need to acknowledge what people are saying and really start to think about, you know, why is it that we are doing these things that we're doing? I think also coercion is a big topic, right? We want to set up therapeutic environments that are have as little coercion as possible and that's for any ther- any type of therapy, regardless if it's ABA or not, right? You don't want to to set up a coercive therapeutic environment. And so, how we do that is challenging to think about, and it's really important that we kind of start to examine everything it is that we're doing it with our programming, with our interactions, with the environments that we're setting up to make sure that we're looking kind of through that lens of like is this coercive or not? You know, I've set up this reinforcement contingency for my learner and how is the learner approaching that reinforcement contingency? Does it seem like it's positive reinforcement contingency to you? And does it also seem like it's positive reinforcement contingency to the learner? You know, they may, you may set it up to be like, you know, do X, Y, and Z and you get this reinforcer and they may experience it from the standpoint of if I don't do X, Y, and Z, then I don't get to have this reinforcer. So it's really just been very informative and and challenging to to think back on my practice and then how I practiced over the years, how I was trained to practice, how we all have been trained to practice in this field and think about, you know, harm that has been done and why it's so important that we start to move in a different direction. Yeah, absolutely can definitely relate to some of that you're saying and how I was trained also. And I had to kind of go through this kind of awakening. I shared this on the podcast like a couple episodes ago, but yeah, it was, it was hard. There's like this cognitive dissonance. You know, you think I spent so much money on this master's program or to go to school or studying to pass this exam. And then to think, well, I had good intentions, but now maybe I was causing harm. It's like, 
I felt it physically. Yeah. You know, and it, I still kind of get emotional about it because there's like this helplessness now when you look back and you're like, well, if I could have only done things differently, if I only had the information that I have now. Absolutely. And, you know, we're still learning. Like it's, there's probably so much more that's going to be uncovered with people speaking up. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's just, you know, it's so brave of them to do that and to be willing to like give us the feedback to change. I think that's a big deal that it's not their job to teach Mm -hmm. us anything. And there are a lot of autistic advocates and people out there that are actually willing to sit down and have these discussions. And, you know, I, I have mentorship that I'm, I'm meeting with autistic individuals and asking my questions and talking about, okay, you know, how could this be done differently and those sorts of things. And they're so gracious to even offer that as, as something that's available to me. Um, but I think it just goes to show like they know like behavior change can be powerful. It's just like, what are the behaviors you're changing and why are you trying to select those behaviors for change and, and whatnot? And I think it's, it's just a very different lens that we need to start looking through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, I have a similar story. I was trained very much when I started working with autistic individuals, I was trained very much in that same, what I'm going to call traditional way. I don't even know how we refer to it now, but I had a very similar experience where I knew something was wrong and I knew it in my bones and I felt it in my body, but I didn't, for years, didn't really process it because I was told that this was what I was supposed to do. You follow through with the demand, even if it leads to, you know, a physical altercation with a six-year-old. That's just not, that's not how it needs to be. But I have hope now, and I've had this experience, I've had this conversation with so many other practitioners that a lot of us have that kind of pain and story and guilt. And I think it's time for us to channel that. What I'm finding is that most people I know in this field really want to do better. And it all comes down to, so what are our next steps? How do we kind of undo the training that we have? How do we undo the harm that we've done, which you can't, you can't go backwards, but you can move forwards. And what I'm finding is that I think all of the work that's being done right now in ascent-based practice is kind of our guiding light because putting that in place, it's a series of questions to ask and things to look at that really help you moment to moment examine your own ableism, coercion, this is how we're going to move forward as a field and get to that point that we all feel comfortable and proud of the work that we're doing. Mm. Yeah. Would you say that ascent-based treatment and neurodiversity affirming practices are kind of interchangeable? Like it's putting person first, following their values? Yeah, absolutely. I think the ascent-based practice is really how you do that, but it is 100% informed by the other piece. Okay. So what would you say are some potential barriers to ethical practices? Like maybe there are clinicians out there who still are practicing in that traditional way. Yeah, I think there there are. And there are some people that still haven't even considered it or, or thought about it. So, you know, if we look to the ethics code, the BACB ethics code, I mean, there are so many pieces. I think I counted up like 16 different parts of the code that directly say that we need to be doing things this way. You know, not using coercion, selecting treatment goals based on client preference. There's so much in there that when you have this lens that you're looking through at you know, treatment planning, even that they're just those initial steps, not even the instruction and the follow through and the delivery, but even in just the treatment planning piece, there's a lot in the ethics code that is directly affected by this type of process. So yeah, I think it, you know, the ethics code, the way you view that obviously is going to be influenced by your history and, and your approach and all of those things. But as a practitioner, 
doing this now, as I look at that ethics code, I'm like, there's no other way. There's absolutely no other way you can ethically practice if you're not doing this. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would disagree with that out there. The other piece that's really challenging right now in the field is that nobody's really clear on what it is and what it's not. And so there's a lot of misconception. And so without a true understanding of it, then it's easy to kind of talk about how it's not achievable. So a lot, you know, a lot of people think it's just let the kid do whatever they want. The kid's in charge. And so if you think about it from that lens, there's a lot of potential problems there. And that's not what it is. Like, you know, I mentioned like the boundaries piece and all of those things. And I think also it comes down to the clinician's skill set that if a learner's values are, you know, this learner is really interested in whatever topic and they want to be able to learn more about that topic, then teaching them the skills to like access new information, that is a values directed goal. Like that would be meaningful to them. And so the learner may not be able to tell you that they need to learn that skill, but that's your job as a behavior analyst is to look at their values and to be able to break down the skills that would help them access more reinforcement in those areas. And so without having the skills as a clinician or the knowledge about those things, it would be easy to see like, this is not something that's going to work. We can't just let the learners be in charge. So with the misconceptions and the you know, it's new. And and I think that's really what it comes down to is it's very new and it's not clearly defined. There's one article out there right now about clinical practice and assent, and there's, you know, some research related articles. So we need to get more literature out there to help clarify those things. But I think those are, are some of the biggest pieces that are a challenge regarding this topic right now in the field with regards to ethics. Mm-hmm. I think in addition to just clarifying terms, processes, elements of assent-based practice or assent-based treatment, I keep interchanging those terms and I'm not sure why. I just feel like assent-based practice like clicks for me. But I'm thinking back, Liz, I'm thinking back to the AscentCon, the conference that the Ascent Lab recently put on. I was there as a participant, also as a huge fan of all of these folks because they're good colleagues of mine. But I was there going through the workshop activities with them. And I think this is what I'm finding with this is Liz was talking about those 16 places in the code that talk about something. And I think when we ask someone a simple, vague question, are you taking into account your client's preferences in setting goals? Something simple like that. Everyone says yes. Everyone says yes, of course. But some of the things that they had us do in the workshop were... Make a list of your client's preferences. How do they like to be taught? Where are they most comfortable? Do they like to be in environments that are hot or cold or warm? Do they like to be touched? Like all of these things. Can you actually make a list of your client's preferences and needs? Can you make a list of what they're, where they're most successful or how you've observed? Have you asked them directly? What did they tell you when you asked them? If you can ask them, I know that sometimes that's not an option for us. But it's not just the clarification, but actually getting more specific about what does it mean to do each one of these things that we'll just say is kind of best practice, good practice. I just think our field hasn't spent enough time digging into each of those elements. Hmm. And what I'm finding with, at least with that experience of going through that workshop, that was a process of like, oh, this is what it really looks like to do this. And that was really powerful for me. I had a kind of a case that I was thinking about at the time and had dozens of light bulb moments over the course of a couple of days just from going through those exercises. Yeah, that's great. One of the things that we've been talking about with the Ascent Lab is, is the need for appetite for, for learning. To show Ascent, you have, it has to be appetitive. And some learners are really clear when that's when the appetite is there, they want to be there and they're grabbing at the materials and they're excited to be there. And you can see it really clearly. And for some learners, it's not that clear. And so it's kind of a hard thing to see. And so when you think about like, okay, I'm already looking at their preferences in order to select the goal that we're working on. And I'm looking at their preferences to, to think and thinking about how do they do in this, you know, teaching arrangement, right. And just, let's say we're using discrete trials 
do they like that type of teaching arrangement or would naturalistic teaching or fluency-based instruction, would that be more preferable to them? So there's so many aspects of the design of the program that need to be considered. And each of those things are, you know, variables that we can tweak to increase the appetite for them learning and for them to want to be there to participate with us. And so it's really, when you look for appetite, to tell whether or not you're on the right track as a clinician, your learner will tell you. And sometimes you have to, you know, use a microscope to, to be able to see it with certain learners. But if you are looking for it, then it becomes more clear. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess like one of the maybe prerequisites, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but like to a scent-based practice is just realizing the harm that can be caused. And as we've been saying, listening to autistic adults will help inform that approach. But I, from my own personal experience, know that there could be a barrier even at that point. Like when I was not even an RBT because there was an RBT back then, but when I was a behavior therapist, I remember hearing these rumors about people on YouTube who were, you know, sharing their experiences with being controlled not to stim. Again, this was, you know, over 10 years ago. So back then there was this consensus, like they're overreacting. They've never experienced ABA. So all of those responses to the critiques. But I'm wondering, like, how can we get to those practitioners who maybe are still in that kind of denial phase because, you know, as we were saying, maybe they don't want to think that they could have caused harm because they've invested so much of their own time into this career too. So if you guys have any ideas. So changing the way you practice is a heavy lift. It's not like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to change it tomorrow. You know, it, it, it is a heavy lift and so you're up against that. You're up against a long history of reinforcement that you are helping people. And that, I don't know about you, but like from the day I started working with autistic people, everyone was like, oh, wow, you you know, that must be so rewarding. And you get all these, like, you're such a good person. You chose this field and all of that. And, and so you're up against all of that. And to have this reckoning that it's not as pretty as you thought. It kind of builds the motivation to do the heavy work, right? And so it, I, I agree with you. I think that's my first point is that I do think it's a prerequisite because if you don't feel very strongly that you need to change what you're doing, then the amount of effort you have to put in to, to change the way you're doing it is just not going to, you're not going to make it. Mm. I think the other piece is that who are we to decide what other people's thoughts and feelings about the treatment that they received are? It is not my place to make a decision about what's best for them. It is theirs. It's not even their parents. It's their decision. Did it improve their life? Did it make their life worse? That's up to them. And it's not up to anybody else. And I think this goes just in general for humankind. It's like, everyone has their own opinion of things and, and everyone has their own experience and it's nobody else's business or place to say it's valid or invalid. And so that's kind of the first place I tend to go is that whether you like it or not, it's not your choice. You know, it's their experience and they get to say whatever they want about their experience. In fact, I'm really glad that people are saying these things because we probably would have just gone ahead, still operating in the same way that we had. So I think that if you can't come to terms with that, then I, I don't know. I don't know how else to kind of convince people of it. Any thoughts, Amy? Well, I just keep coming back to the only people that I've heard really argue with this as a basic stance that we've done harm and we should do better. The message that I'm hearing often comes back to like, well, this is science and whatever you're talking about is not. And I think that 
just in our field, there's something about behavior analysts. We really like to keep coming back to the science. And I think if we can continue to talk about how there is science behind all of these things that we're saying within and outside of our field, I think that's the other thing. Like if you're reading and listening outside of ABA, outside of that kind of small bubble, then you will hear these stories and you will get these messages and you will see neuroscience and all kinds of things that are essentially emphasizing this message that harm has been done and that it can be better. But again, I just keep coming back to my hope is that we can continue to build something that looks and feels just like our science that actively removes that element um, Mm. or works toward that. I think it's also, (laughs) I keep hearing myself saying this, we've got, it's, it's a moving target. We are constantly working towards this. And you may never actually achieve perfection in this area. Liz and I have had multiple conversations where in the process of trying to find a way to support a certain learner, have a conversation about their needs, what we end up with is like, oh, shoot, (laughs) this was coercive the whole time. As I thought that I was totally not doing that, I just realized I've been doing that. And so it is kind of a there's this self-awareness that's required, which is a whole skill set to be able to, to be willing to be wrong. There's a vulnerability to that that I think is what science is all about. And at the same time, we're having trouble connecting this kind of let's be humans to our science. So that's where I'm finding the barriers, at least in the conversations that I'm observing, is this false dichotomy that there's science and then there's this other stuff this being human part. And I just, I don't see, I don't think that way, but I think the more that we can do as behavior analysts, again, build the literature base. As soon as we can cite an article, maybe we'll get some walls coming down from some folks who are saying, well, I don't see any literature about this. Mm. I don't love that that's something we have to do. I don't love that that has to be the basic premise in order to get people to kind of on board with just what I think might be common sense, at least for me at this point, but I know that I wasn't there 10 years ago. I know that I'm here now and it's hard to think back to what was I thinking and why didn't I notice this? Why didn't I realize it earlier? But I think we have to kind of have compassion for each other because we're all in different parts of that journey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And behavior analysis too, is like, it's behavior. The science can be applied to anything regardless of what the content is, right? So select content that is honoring the voices of of these people who have had these experiences, that is content that is moving in the right direction towards human rights and autonomy, and apply the science. The science can be applied to anything. I just like, I'm a true radical behaviorist. and, And so I see everything through that lens, like behavior is occurring based on the circumstances. And and so like, these are new circumstances for us. So let's just shift our lens and and apply the science in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually one of the, when I was kind of going through my awakening, as I was saying earlier, it actually took me hearing other behavior analysts talking about it, which made me think, okay, there could be something here, there. And that, I mean, for better or worse, right? Like, why did it take me hearing it from someone who had maybe credentials that I did? Like, maybe I could relate to them. But I guess my point is, I think these conversations are important because you never know who's going to be listening and who might be on that edge and like, might've been hearing things and curious, was afraid to see what's on the other side because they're afraid of feeling ashamed or whatever is going to come up for them. Like, I just want people to know, like, as we are, we've been saying, there is a better way. So once you realize there's like this propelling kind of like of doing something about it now, so you can, you know, sit with it for a week and feel bad, but like move on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that those of us who are on board with this, have to learn how to be advocates and allies. And there's a whole lot of learning that has to happen to to do that. I think we're in the process, of course, and I'm learning a lot as I go. But one of the things 
before we started talking about this more publicly, one of the questions we had was, who are we to be sharing this message when really it's not our voices that need to be heard? But just what you said, Rachel, is maybe hearing it from us is what needs to happen. So I'm feeling like I want to shout it from the rooftops and I hope somebody hears it. And I also want to make sure that we're continuing to call back to other voices that need to be heard. I think that's something that we really value and we've talked about a lot before coming on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. Okay, so I'd like to wrap up with one last question. What advice do you have for other practitioners in the field? I think my first thing is that go listen to somebody's experience. It'll be really uncomfortable. You'll feel guilty and you'll feel a lot of shame and it'll be probably pretty miserable for you as a, as a behavior analyst. And that's okay. That's where we need to, to start with it. And poor Amy had to listen to me go through my, my reckoning, <laughs> but, uh, it's the best place to start. So I would say that is a good place to start. And then also like pull up your bootstraps and like take steps to move forward. If you just start looking at your programming from a different lens or you start, you know, counting ascent withdrawal or even trying to see ascent withdrawal in your learners. So like, does my learner want to be here right now or not? and just start to think about it. Those are like kind of baby steps that you can take to move in the right direction towards shifting how you approach it. I agree with all that. I have kind of a silly one, but it's really been powerful for me. During the AscentCon, Bridget McCormick made a comment about how learning is inherently vulnerable and thinking about that vulnerability as part of this process. What I'm finding is that it's been really valuable for me to take the perspective of a learner by going out into the world and trying to learn something entirely new that's really hard for me. And so that's my new bit of advice is go try to learn something. Have the experience of having somebody teach you and having to try to ask them questions about, can you do it this way instead? Or can you help me understand this? Because it does put you that in that position to kind of take that perspective. And I've found that that's really helping me kind of keep this thought process top of mind. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it just makes me think I'm taking yeah, some I'm, Spanish I'm classes. Yeah, I'm learning Spanish right now. Yeah, <laughs> you too? <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. I'm actually, um, I'm moving to Spain in three weeks, so I have to learn Spanish. I know some, but I really need to buckle down and get this to a level that I'm more confident with. And uh that's been a big, taking a big leap, kind of actually forcing myself to mm-hmm. be instructed. <laughs> it's a humbling experience. Yeah, for sure. Frustrating when you can't communicate and express yourself in the way that you want to. Yeah. It's a great way to take perspective on the people that we're trying to help and advocate for. All right. Anything else? Just wanted to let everybody know that, you know, we want to continue the conversation, join it, talk about it, find your community of practice and talk to them about what you're, what you're experiencing with this. Obviously, we are really committed to being out there and saying more about this and providing as many resources as we can. We're working really hard on creating some more free and paid resources for folks. And so There's a couple of things that if you head to our website, we want to make sure that everybody has access to the latest research and articles and resources. So that's my only bit is please let us let us join the conversation with you. And um, we're looking forward to staying in touch. All right. And that's octavetraining.com. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes. That's right. We're we're working on laying out a new page that will be octavetraining.com forward slash ascent. Got it. All right. Well, thank you both so much for sharing today. I know this is going to be very impactful for many people. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for letting us share our story and our passions. We can go on all day, but I think we wrapped (laughs) up nicely. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. What are some of your ideas of how ABA can be practiced ethically? 
Share your thoughts over in our online Global Autism community. Like Liz and Amy, are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Or are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online Global Autism community to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.